Welcome to A Bit More Complicated, the podcast where you can hear science-based discussions about important topics, issues, and problems in our society, and what we can do to make them better. I'm Dylan Selterman at Johns Hopkins University. And I'm Manuel Galvan at UNC Chapel Hill. Today we've got a very special episode for you because we have not one, but two distinguished guests joining us today. That's right, we got our very first two-guest episode featuring Jake Womack and Tom Costello. They are here to talk to us about whether there is a political divide or whether it's all in our minds. In other words, how are liberals and conservatives similar to or different from each other in psychological ways? This is sometimes coined as horseshoe theory, but we'll frame the discussion in terms of political symmetry versus asymmetry. Before we dive into this in more detail, let's meet our guests. Dr. Tom Costello is a postdoctoral scholar working with Dr. David Rand at MIT and Dr. Gordon Pennycook at the University of Regina. He graduated with his PhD from Emory University under the advisement of the late Dr. Scott Lilienfeld and also Dr. Arbor Tassimi. Tom, can you tell us a bit more about yourself and what you're currently working on? Yeah, sure. Um, and I, so I uh, just a quick correction. I ha- I'm defending my dissertation in a, in a few weeks, so I'm not not a uh, PhD just yet, but, but, mm, uh, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm broadly interested in why people believe the things they believe and, and how kind of different dimensions of ideology and belief intersect with psychological processes. Um, so like what are the causes and, uh, correlates of authoritarianism or conservatism and how can we kind of disentangle all of those things in a way that, that makes sense and helps us really understand mechanistically what's going on. So for example, I mean, one thing I'm working on now is looking at the basic cognitive processes associated with a whole suite of different ideologies, both in terms of like neurocognitive tests and self-report measures. Very cool. Um, And and next we have Dr. Jake Womack, who's a postdoctoral scholar working in Dr. Kurt Gray's Deepest Beliefs Lab here at UNC Chapel Hill. He graduated with his PhD at Mizzou University of Missouri under the advisement of Dr. Laura King. And Jake is also a good friend of mine, and I just happened to be watching his two cats, Mochi and Phil, when when he was out of town. Jake, can you elaborate on your current research interests and share anything else about yourself? Yeah, so I have like two main things I'm interested in. The first is the experience of meaning in life, how people come to evaluate their lives as significant, purposeful, and coherent. Uh, And then the second thing is I'm interested in political ideology and uh, sort of what the interpersonal and cognitive correlates of uh, political ideology are and how those relate to different sort of uh, political behaviors. The most fun I have with research is when I can find an intersection between those two different topics. Uh, So in the past, I've done work trying to understand the relationship between different aspects of political ideology and meaning in life. Uh, So in some of my work, I've shown, for instance, right-wing authoritarianism promotes the feeling that life is meaningful. As a spoiler alert, later on, I have some unpublished work that shows left-wing authoritarianism does not do the same thing, unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess it depends on you know what angle you're coming at that from. Quick aside for the audience, authoritarianism is often measured by asking people to what extent they think that social hierarchies should be enforced. And this is often measured by asking people how important it is for children to obey their parents. 
Generally, liberals have more egalitarian views and want kids and adults to be equal. Conservatives believe that parents should make the rules and kids should follow them. We're also going to talk about right-wing and left-wing authoritarianism. Right-wing authoritarianism, or RWA for short, is similar, but focuses on social groups in society. Folks high in RWA tends to have negative attitudes toward groups perceived to violate mainstream values and the way of life. Those individuals who are more right-wing tend to believe that inequality between groups is sometimes justified to preserve social order. Left-wing authoritarianism, or LWA for short, is like the opposite. It's about using social aggression to subvert hierarchies. Left-wing folks desire strong changes such that historically marginalized people are lifted up, even if it means sacrificing some of the rights or social norms we currently have. But I think, you know, one of the reasons I'm interested in politics is because, you know, I'm sort of tasked in my current lab and my current position with uh, sort of working on how to bridge political divides. And as a preview for where we'll go today, from my sort of view, there are some important differences between those in the left and right. And so if we want to get people to sort of come together and engage in similar behaviors, you might need to take different approaches based on those differences. Yeah, and that, that I think that sets the stage a little bit for our conversation as well. So uh, I should also mention that Jake and I are collaborators. Um, he and I specifically have written a science communication article on my blog, thescienceofsocialproblems.com, where we explore the implications of our topic today. So political symmetry, specifically those implications on people in marginalized communities. Um, the idea in our blog post is a component of a larger paper that Jake and I are kind of uh, working on uh, that tackles liberalism, and, and tries to th talk about how we could expand uh, our investigation of liberalism because the field is kind of focused on conservatism. Jake, how would you describe the purpose of the liberalism paper? So for quite a long time, at least seven decades, going back to World War II, um, the field of psychology has been focused on understanding the political right. It originated with trying to understand right-wing authoritarianism and um, sort of the popularity of Hitler during World War II. Uh, and I think since then, there's sort of been a continuing trend of sort of pathologizing the right, uh, being concerned with negative social implications linked to right-wing ideology, you know, anti-democratic impulses, intergroup animosity, resistance to giving rights uh, to those who belong to marginalized groups. Um, and I don't think that's unimportant. I mean, I think if you look at what's happening in the U.S. today and in some other countries, uh, there are still important social implications that we need to be thinking about uh, that arise from different aspects of right wing ideology. Um, but I think in, in the overwhelming majority of literature on political ideology uh, and different constructs that are linked to it, because we focus so much on the right, we don't really know that much about the left. Uh, the, I think the most common approach is to, you know, define conservatism, for instance, as resistance to change and opposition to equality. Uh, and we just define liberalism as the opposite or the absence of that. Um, and so just because I think 
you know, the left hasn't been the center of focus for a lot of our research, we might not know that much about it. Yeah. And that sounds like there's some interesting overlap between you and Tom. So I'm really glad you're both here. And I should also say that when we published the blog posts, uh, we got some inter interesting interactions with Tom, uh, who are he posed some really thoughtful questions. And so that kind of resulted in us inviting you both on, Dylan and I inviting you both on to explore political symmetry and asymmetry further. So I really appreciate you both joining us. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this. Um, and I think I think we'll be able to cover some really fascinating ground. And I imagine we don't uh, disagree as much as as uh, someone coming in might think, but also where we do disagree, I think it'll be really fruitful to uh, mm -hmm. talk through. We'll, we'll yeah. find a way to make that happen. We'll, we'll yeah. figure out ways to disagree. <laughs> Well, I, I really appreciate uh, you inviting me here as well. And I'm excited to, I mean, this paper is still a work in progress. So I'm excited to hear Tom's thoughts. And I'm sure, you know, this discussion will be beneficial to uh, the quality of this paper that we're working on. So appreciate you being here too, Tom. Gotcha. And, and you know, hopefully it will be a contentious debate and we can sell it that way. Um, okay. I'll try to be just contentious. Or, something. or, or like... people can just learn about, you know, <laughs> psychology of political ideology. We'll see. <laughs> I don't know. People people want a wrestling match. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, we're, we're trying to have a, a fruitful, pleasant conversation. So um, I think we should start. I think all of us, particularly you, uh, Jake, and you, Tom, you are both kind of have expertise in this area. But for the average person, they may not really understand exactly what we mean by let alone political symmetry versus asymmetry, but also just what do we mean by the political left and the political right? And so I'm wondering if you can both kind of give your takes about uh, how would you describe the political left and the political right. I'm just going to pull some just basic text on this topic from Wikipedia, which, you know, this isn't a college professor. This isn't a college paper where I wouldn't cite Wikipedia, um, but there's been some research on uh, how uh, Wikipedia is about as reliable as any other encyclopedia on most yeah, topics. Yeah, in the crowds. But um yeah, yeah. Anyway, so so I'll, I'll go ahead and read through a quick description of left-wing politics and then right-wing politics, and then Dylan is going to add on some of them there too, and then I want to hear y'all's uh, thoughts on whether those descriptions are adequate or if there's anything we need to flesh out a little bit more. So left-wing politics uh, generally is defined as like supporting social equality and egalitarianism, kind of along the lines of what Jake was saying often in opposition to social hierarchy. So left-wing politics typically involves a concern for those in society who its adherents perceive as disadvantaged relative to others, as well as a belief that there are unjustified inequalities that need to be reduced or abolished. The term left was, was later applied to a number of movements, especially republicanism in France during the 18th century, followed by socialism, anarchism, communism, and the labor movement, Marxism, social democ democracy, syndicalism in the 19th and 20th century. Since the term left-wing has been applied to a broad range of movements, including the civil rights movement, feminist movement, LGBT rights movement, abortion rights movement, multiculturalism, anti-war movement, and the environmental movement. So kind of a wide range of political parties that take on the label of the left. Um, on the other hand, right-wing politics is generally defined by support of the view that certain social orders and hierarchies are inevitable, natural, normal, or desirable, typically supporting this position on the basis of either natural law, uh, or economics, or even authority or tradition. Hierarchy and inequality may be seen as, seen as a natural result of traditional social differences or competition within a market economy. 
The right often includes social conservatives and fiscal conservatives with a minority of right-wing movements such as fascists and uh, uh, anti-capitalist sentiments. Fascists can often carry anti-capitalist sentiments. And the right also includes certain groups who are culturally liberal but fiscally conservative. They often call themselves right-wing libertarians. Yeah, so Dylan, if you could add on a little bit here. I I just, in in thinking about those basic definitions and framing for this, it does strike me as a bit heavy on the issues end of things and not so much the role of governments. I think when I when I'm thinking about liberalism, I'm thinking about a philosophy of using government institutions in order to achieve certain political outcomes that are good for society. And when I think of conservatism, I think of wanting those same outcomes and the same goals, but feeling that government may not be the best way or may be counterproductive to those goals and may prefer other means such as privatization or non-government institutions like churches and more local community control. So that's the only thing that I wanted to kind of tack on there. And I also think that with regards to specific issues, those things fluctuate a lot over time. And we see some pretty good evidence, for example, that the average Republicans' views on things like free trade have shifted dramatically over the past five to ten years. Republicans used to be very strongly in in favor of free trade, but then Trump came along and talked about how everyone was getting screwed, and now Republicans are much less favorable to those free trade agreements. So I, I am very much in the skeptical camp when it comes to trying to understand what these terms mean, liberal and conservative, left-wing versus right-wing. That's where I want to get more of your thoughts, Tom and Jake. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm really glad we're starting with this question um, because it, it cuts to one of my biggest issues with a lot of popular paradigms that, that compare liberals and conservatives or left and right, whether or not the finding is that they're symmetrical or asymmetrical. Um, and reading through that sort of laundry list of Wikipedia things illustrates the point I'm about to make nicely, which is that it's not clear that there's any like psychologically coherent category for like the left or the right, um, that these things mean different things to different people. There's like social dimensions, there's economic dimensions, there's questions about how uh, much the government should intervene versus not. Um, and it gets more complicated from there. Um, and I think I, I worry that that in comparing left and right, it's it is so hard to define. Like there's also these uh, you know these philosophical considerations that, that that Dylan outlined. You know we can we can talk about like Burkean conservatism, or they they're like they have an abundance of caution and all sorts of other things. And because of that, as a psychological scientist, my perspective is how can we use the the heuristics of left and right to understand why people are drawn to the political beliefs that they're drawn to. Um, and the way I would I, my, well, the way I would respond to that question is uh, maybe we can't, maybe it, it's too broad a, a brush to paint with. Um, and and I think that is where I would, I would sort of hope the field will go in the future is moving away from comparing left and right. I guess I would agree that perhaps more than other topics, political psychology is more susceptible to history effects. Um, and, and what essentially that means is as society changes over time, it might be that our understanding of the way 
things relate to each other in a psychological sense changes. Um, because there certainly have been, you know, like you mentioned, issue realignments for the different parties over time. Um, I think it's useful in this case, though, to think about like how we actually operationalize political ideology. Um, and there are uh, like sort of two when it just comes to like left, right conservatism or conservatism, liberalism specifically, there's sort of like two predominant approaches. And one of them is sort of like an issue based approach where you ask people how they feel about a list of particular issues. And based on those feelings, you can say they are relatively more conservative or relatively more liberal or somewhere in the middle. Um, and, and those measures certainly do change quite a bit over time and need to be updated frequently. Um, the second uh, general approach, though, is more of a symbolic identification. So you just ask people, in general, where would you place yourself on the political spectrum? Where would you place yourself on the liberal conservative continuum for social issues? Would you say you're relatively more liberal or conservative on economic issues? Um, and I think with that kind of approach, things have been pretty consistent over time. Um, and even if you look at different, I mean, there are certainly... Um, nuances, but if you look at like different ways that people have operationalized different aspects of left versus right outside of just conservatism versus liberalism. So like right-wing authoritarianism, social dominance orientation, uh, system justification, just world beliefs. And as a quick aside, I feel like I should explain what some of these terms mean. So uh, just world beliefs are beliefs that basically people get what they deserve. So for folks who believe in just world, they think that generally speaking, good things will happen to good people and bad things will happen to bad people. So if you're successful, it's because you it. If you're not, it's because you don't. Uh, system justification theory is a bit different. It basically explains why people might feel this way. So according to system justification theory, people are motivated to defend and justify the status quo or even the prevailing social and economic and political hierarchy that exists in today's society. Social dominance orientation is a bit similar. It's a tendency to accept and even prefer social inequalities, a general preference for society that is following a strict social hierarchy. The relationships between those things and other variables, as far as my understanding goes, has been pretty consistent over time. Um, I, I would add that I, I like the nuance and, and, and sort of level of complexity that the, the laundry list of you know, Wikipedia issues brings to bear on this conversation. I, I think that's something we can return to in, in the context of trying to better operationalize what exactly leftism or liberalism is. I think everything Jake said is, is right there. Uh, the the question though is like so so one finding is that people's symbolic ideology or identity doesn't necessarily align with their issue preferences you can identify as a conservative and actually when you're asked about specific issues you'll endorse left uh, the issues typically associated with the left or vice versa um, and there's another body of or a related body of literature in political science that says actually most of the population in the United States for example um, isn't particularly ideological. They don't really have a sense of which issues go together um, and, and why they might go together even conceptually. And nonetheless, those same people are identifying as liberals or conservatives. They have that mm -hmm. kind of symbolic alignment. Um, and, and, so, and I think that distinction is really important for theory building and trying to understand what's really going on under the surface. So like if conservatives are higher on X trait, what is going on there? Why is it the case? Is it because it's something about conservative ideology that is resonating with X trait, like say rigidity, like wanting to keep things the same and preserving the status quo and hierarchy? Um, so if you're cognitively rigid, you're drawn to that set of ideas, 
or is it that there's this kind of set of other factors associated with like sociodemographic variables that align that structure the parties or uh, all sorts of other things that aren't necessarily related to ideology per se? Um, and maybe those are more important. And I think that leads nicely into our next question about political symmetry and how that is discussed in the wider discourse outside of political psych. Like if you asked your parents or close friends of yours, are conservatives symmetrical to liberals, like in terms of their ways of thinking, you know, are, are does, does the average person who's not an academic like us think of liberals and conservatives as more the same or more different? Yeah, I mean, I think people definitely have uh, social prototypes that they use, um, regardless of whether it is or isn't like a, a accurate or, a cat- or like really, truly a category. People think in terms of categories. There's there's work showing that, um, and so certainly there are lay theories about differences between liberals and conservatives um, that, in some ways, map on to what what the psychological literature is interested in and finds. Um, at the same time, you know, if, if you're talking to someone at a bar and you say, oh, I'm socially uh, liberal and economically conservative, they'll, they will know exactly what you're talking about. Um, and so uh, there are also lay theories about it kind of not it being a bit more complicated to, to uh, <laughs> yeah, both, uh, draw from that. the name and to <laughs> beat a dead horse, perhaps. <laughs> love it. I don't know. I find that a, a, a tough question. I guess I'm trying to think of like, I mean, I guess there is like some like lay perspectives that like both sides are similarly bad. I think that you can find that particularly commonly mm. when people talk about politicians. Uh, I think, you know, animosity towards political elites is a pretty common thing in America. And I think that animosity is driven by, you know, similar feelings on the left and the right, feeling that the politicians are disingenuous, um, too much dominated by lobbyists, private interests, self-interests, out of touch with the everyday person, not actually representing their constituents and instead just, you know, engaging in things that make their lives better or, you know, make the rich richer. Um, I think, I don't know. I mean, I think the things that people talk about on a daily basis, though, like why you should dislike the left or why you should dislike the right are are pretty different. Like um, for the left, you know, you have the woke censorship um there's like a common stereotype as of like liberals is like you know too emotional and feminine and not willing to get the job done and then um on the right you have you know you know, people accuse them of being anti-crt of course conspiracy theories QAnon kind of stuff so i don't know here yeah here's my thought with this i think it's pretty clear and and uh, I'm also not contesting that there are phenotypic differences between liberals and conservatives in terms of what we're observing. Um, And, uh, you know, that's embedded in our language and in the in the sort of uh, metaphors we use, all sorts of things, you know, it's like uh, Woody versus Buzz Lightyear, you know, Mm -hmm. could be like prototypes of liberal and conservative in some ways. And uh, the the real the question, though, is like, so what? Um, What does that actually mean? What 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 can it tell us? Um, and that's where I start to worry that um, the idea of like a symmetry or an asymmetry is just like sort of explanatorily impoverished, that um, that there are differences between any two groups that are sociodemographically opposed in lots of fundamental ways is in some meaningful sense, like trivial, 
Um, of course there are. Um, the, the, the question is like why those differences exist. Yeah. As, a, as an academic researcher, I think that that makes a lot of sense as like, um, we need to focus on the actual underlying reasons why any ex- any differences actually exist. I think one of the things, uh, kind of to piggyback on one of Jake's points, that um, it does seem that there is this kind of understanding amongst just the general population, and particularly people who have spent a lot of time online and read a lot of like politics online, of this thing called horseshoe theory. Um, and usually the idea of horseshoe theory, is, you know, just imagine the shape of a horseshoe and at the, t- at the top of the horseshoe are, you, you can kind of imagine it sitting in a X, Y axis. So as you move from the left to the right, you're moving politically left and right. And then at the top of the axis is like bad. And at the bottom of the axis is good. And so the two extremes go into the top and they're both bad, right? The, no matter if you're on the left or you're on the right, they're both just bad. But if, if you're an extremist, and then the the most good position, if you take horseshoe theory kind of seriously, is that the middle, right, is is the most good position. And, and some sometimes the internet refers to this as the enlightened centrist concept, right? Like the person in the middle of the two parties is actually the most reasonable person in the room because they're recognizing, they're taking the good from the left and the good from the ba- uh, the right, and they're like abandoning both of the bad sides of those two arguments. Um, I think this is often the way people will think of symmetry. Like this is the way that they they think of it, um, and I think it's for a lot of the, the reasons that Jake outlined too. It's just that they see politicians are bad, and so therefore the people who are sitting in positions of power. But the I think this gets a couple things wrong. One of them is I think we kind of outlined I think in in the the first question we uh, got to, which is like the difference between the left and the right, the different political found uh, political ideolo- ideological and philosophical foundations that are inherent to the two uh, different uh, political positions. Um, The other thing is there's this kind of empirical reality also, and we're gonna get into this more, where just one, for example, like an easy example is one party just tolerates a much higher degree of disbelief in anthropogenic climate change, for example, and the other doesn't. And so you do have just this like underlying problem where one of the parties is kind of headed by a uh, ex-reality TV star who has absolutely no qualms with lying all the time, and the other one doesn't. And so you do have you do have a somewhat of an imbalance, which is why I think the the idea of the enlightened centrist is is kind of mocked as like a implausible position because it can't be that the two parties, from from the perspective of a lot of people, it can't be that the two parties are symmetrical when one of them is so much worse on a, a, a bunch of important issues. I'm curious if y'all have any reactions to that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think throughout the history of psychology, like we're interested in studying behavior and behavior in the real world. And I think that's that's been a common theme for many of the most famous psychologists out there. And I think there is a debate about whether or not scientists should be motivated to make what they feel is a positive impact on the world. Uh, but I think, you know, many of the most prominent psychologists have been motivated uh, by that desire. I mean, Gordon Allport, for, insha- for instance, uh, was interested in reducing racism. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think like what is really important about sort of what you highlighted is like, there is, at least in the United States, there is a real world difference where there seems to be an imbalance in terms of how much each side is anti-science. And that has real implications for how fast uh, we're destroying the environment. Uh, as well as a, a number of other implications. Um, there's differences in how much each side is willing to tolerate 
anti-democratic, not only behaviors, but policies as well and, and um, moves by political elites. Um, and there's also a difference in um, how much each side is attempting to restrict the rights of people who are historically marginalized and, and in some cases attempting to revert um, where we are today to be more like, uh, to be more similar to uh, levels of inequality in the past. Um, and I think those are important differences in terms of psychology. I, I think people care about these issues. And if people have different sensitive, sensitivities to these issues that are you know, driving them to align with one side or the other, or driving them to the left or the right end of the political spectrum, that's important to understanding you know, the psychology of, of political you know, thought, attitude, yeah. and behavior. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think that, yeah, that's a really, uh, important important just set of, of considerations um one one thing i would also like point out or just add to that is um where and how we look for things affects what we see and what we find um and you know this uh, the, throughout this discussion to, uh, at least so far we've really been zeroed in on like american politics which i think are weird in both like the traditional sense of that word and also in the uh the um the uh what, hey, what was what western educated hydrich yeah the, yeah the yeah western educated industrialized rich and democratic sense of the word weird being the acronym um and i i you yeah u.s politics especially you know republicans in the united states uh are are very idiosyncratic i think relative like in terms of how they map on to the way that political systems work elsewhere and how people think of politics elsewhere not entirely there are still commonalities of course but they're also important divergences um and that then just like raises the question um what are we actually talking about when we're talking about the right if we're only studying u.s politics and then trying to make these generalizable inferences about Mm -hmm. how uh the left and right psychologically speaking, are are Mm -hmm. different. Tom, that's a great point. And going back to Manny's example of climate change uh, and and the COVID vaccine hesitancy would be another good example. We don't Mm -hmm. see a big political cleavage in other countries, even those that are demographically similar to ours. These are uniquely American problems that we're facing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I agree about the idiosyncrasies. uh, And I think it's super important for, um, you know, people to think about how things are, are different or or similar in the United States versus other places. But, you know, I guess I live in the United States. All of my experiences, well, almost all of them are in the United States. I care about what happens to the United States. I care about the world too, but it's like, in, in terms of like what I can directly know and interact with. Um, so I, I guess the, the United States is particularly important to me, even though I do think um, there is this this larger importance of if you want to understand these things in a universal sense, you have to look at, um, you know, cultures across the world. Uh, and that is why, you know, th- throughout throughout this podcast, I have tried to add the qualifier frequently of focusing, like when I'm talking about this, I'm talking about the United States specifically, mm-hmm. um, rather than trying to generalize to every person on the planet. And there are some similarities too. like, for example, in um, my my wife's family lives in Israel, and they have a similar kind of left-right divide as the one that you're describing, Jake, where mm-hmm. the left is more egalitarian, and the right has more racism. 
I mean, there's there's no there's no kind and polite way to say that. It's true. Mm-hmm. So I, I agree with your point that there are some ways in which we're idiosyncratic here in America, and then some ways in which we can see similar patterns all over the world. Parties are really interesting because they're coalitions designed to appeal to the widest uh, set of of voters that is feasible, while also like kind of a lot at the center to hold within the party, and and so. While, while like we might observe a left-right distinction in terms of the way that parties are structured in other countries, um, it's not all other countries, uh, to, be, to be clear, but in, in Western democratic countries especially, because parties are designed to appeal to such a broad set of people, it's, it's sort of, it's tenuous to claim then that they map onto the way that politics are structured in our, in our minds. Um, so uh, if you're trying to get as many voters as possible you're actually trying to like spread out who you're appealing to rather than mm-hmm. uh put out a coherent a conceptually coherent message yeah and i yeah. think this is a I, good i totally agree yeah this is a good transition uh also because i think what we've been trying to do is start the conversation off at the position where most people are thinking about these things and then move into the political psychology of things because i think um that sets like a good groundwork, but also political psychologists, as has come up, come up several times in this conversation, particularly with you, Tom, is are thinking about this issue in a very different way than the average person might think about this, right? Political psychologists, it seems based on our conversation so far, are ta- thinking about political symmetry and asymmetry in terms of how people think, the attitudes they hold, the way that they conceive of themselves, um, their psychology, right? That's We are psychologists. That makes sense. Um, so mm-hmm. I am curious, is there... I tried to, I think I asked Jake at some point, like, is there a seminal article that outlines this debate and really uh, the symmetry versus asymmetry article that really like outlines things? And um, I think his answer was like, here's a dozen papers that all kind of like (laughs) talk about this. Um, But there's not like a single paper that says, here's the debate, here's the two sides, here's the evidence for and against or whatever. Um, So I'm curious from your perspective, Tom and Jake, is there a debate or is there just different lines of research that can ultimately be reconciled? Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a really, I mean, it's interesting because there's like these ap- acute points of disagreement, like about whether um, people's motivational drives for certainty or to be safe directly at structure their political ideology. That's like a big point of contention or whether ideological extremists are more or less X trait than conservative. Um, there, there are definitely disagreements, but I think it's a, also a bit like uh, herding cats. It, it's that's sort of how the debate is structured, where there are people going in all these different directions, and you know, just because two are butting heads, it doesn't. And that there's that's a prominent article where the two are butting heads. It doesn't mean that that's like where the field is necessarily. Um, and and one set of papers that I, that captures this really nicely is there's a. a uh, Hibbing et al. 2014 in Brain and Behavioral Science. It was a Target article outlining a, a theoretical um, uh, position that negativity bias, which is you know attention to aversive stimuli in your environment, um, causes political conservatism. Um, and that article is fascinating. It's wonderfully written. I disagree with a lot of it, but it's 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 a great great article. And, and, but the, I think what's really valuable is it's then followed by like 30 commentaries from different people from different perspectives in the field. And if someone really wanted to get into this and read all 80 pages of that or whatever, that's, I think, I think where you should go. <laughs> Sounds great. I can't wait to get into Seriously, that. Seriously. Yeah. I'm going to read that too. <laughs>
All right, so that that's probably a good place to segue here to our next question. So I, I want to go into the weeds here on the evidence for both political asymmetry and political symmetry. So the first question is, and I want Jake to start us off, and then Tom, you can weigh in on this. Are conservatives and liberals different in some psychological dimensions? Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah, I think it would be useful to just like give a more specific summary of like, in the literature, what are we talking about when we talk about symmetry versus asymmetry? Asymmetry would be, you know, there is some difference on some variable between those who are on the far left versus the far right. And symmetry means that um, it's actually, you know, the far left and far right are mirror images of each other on a given variable. And it's actually, you know, that thing is distinguishing moderates versus extremists, regardless of what side that they're on. And so, and, and sort of my reading of the literature and my understanding, um, the symmetry versus asymmetry debate has played out in sort of like two categories of variables. One is interpersonal, and the second is sort of about cognitive dispositions. So the asymmetry perspective suggests that conservatives are uniquely high on cognitive rigidity and liberals are more cognitively flexible. And so that's supported by a lot of correlational work uh, showing that variables that sort of reflect sort of different dispositions and cognitions, such as intolerance of uncertainty, need for cognitive closure, intolerance of ambiguity, openness to experience, uh, that like conservatives are more cognitively rigid on these variables and liberals are more cognitively flexible. And then for interpersonal uh, variables, I think, um, so like support for the asymmetry side shows that like conservatives are more interpersonally hostile and liberals are more interpersonally warm. And so supporting this, we found like correlations between political and ideology and variables. So that show that for instance, uh, conservatives are less compassionate less empathetic, less motivated to empathize with people that are different from them, uh, less agreeable. Well, actually, it's interesting. So uh, the agreeableness personality trait can be decomposed into like two aspects, politeness and warmth. And so uh, conservatives are actually more polite and liberals are more warm. But then, of course, there's different way of thinking, different ways of thinking about these things. And so predominantly, I think in terms of experimental research, uh, people have found support for the idea that liberals and conservatives are similarly cognitively rigid. So both are similarly motivated to avoid exposure to opposing views and will engage in a number of cognitive biases to sort of, you know, maintain the beliefs that they came into a situation with and discount evidence that sort of conflicts with their existing beliefs. There have also been some tasks showing that like, uh, in terms of like behavioral cognitive flexibility that uh, Democrats and Republicans are similarly inflexible to each other. Again, that gets that issue of like, are we talking about continuous political ideology versus categorizing people in one group versus another? And, And we can talk more about how that those two different approaches sort of come up with different evidence. And then in terms of this more interpersonal aspect, I think there's some pretty compelling evidence that liberals and conservatives are similarly hateful towards ideologically dissimilar others. So the idea here is that people on the left uh, feel a, a great deal of animosity towards those on the political right, and those on the political right feel a great deal of uh, political animosity towards towards those on the left. Um, so yeah, just with that summary, I mean, I think you know we have these two categories: interpersonal and cognitive. 
uh, we have these two sorts of different methodologies, sort of correlational observational work versus experimental work. And they sort of arrive at different conclusions where the sort of correlational observational personality oriented work is more supportive of symmetry and the more situational experimental and the moment kind of work shows that those on the left and the right uh, can behave in similar ways that reflect similar levels of cognitive rigidity and, and interpersonal coldness or callousness. That was a great overview. I, the only thing I would add is some people go a little bit broader, um, in part based on the, those core variables that, that Jake outlined. But, you know, people have like said it's like humor styles and entertainment preferences and and also like change the level of analysis, so like neural structures, fMRI data, phys- physiological data um, relating to like threat sensitivity and skin conductance. And I, I recently got a set of two reviews. Um, one of which called my overview of this literature hyperbolic and that I overstated the support for it. And the other said that I woefully understated the support for it and that it was like one of the best supported findings in all of psychology. So um, I'm, I, I'm not, I, I, I hesitate to use this word is why I say this, but I, I would say that there's a, an ocean of studies, at least looking at all of these different ways that the left and right ostensibly differ um but but they're kind of rooted in these theoretical differences of rigidity and motivational needs and interpersonal differences and um kind of a few key psychological uh stars in a broader constellation of of differences tom i'm so curious what what did the editor say in light of those two competing uh the editor was was uh very actually was on board with with uh he oh in terms of that specific thing the editor said, some may feel that it's impossible to reconcile the perspectives of these two reviewers, but I think that you can sort of uh, weave in the, like find a happy middle ground in your in your edits. So we'll, see. we'll see if I can do that. Very good. That's great. <laughs> the enlightened centrist position rears its head again. <laughs> yeah, the enlightened centrist editor. <laughs> I, I did want to throw out a couple of other things because I have some research in moral foundations and also happiness and well-being. And I I guess I I want to throw out this question. Are conservatives happier than liberals? And do you see any compelling evidence also that liberals and conservatives rely on different sets of moral concerns? So the the moral foundations thing first, uh, I think that's a super complicated area. Kurt would tell you it doesn't matter about Kurt Gray, who is my postdoc advisor, it doesn't matter like uh, that the, like there's no real differences if you think about where people are perceiving harm. And, and the real left-right differences is that they see different groups as having different levels of vulnerability to harm. The other thing that's super interesting about the moral foundation stuff, and I'm, I'm sure you already know this, but sort of the original set of finding was, was that, you know, liberals and conservatives differ in sort of the moral considerations they take. So like, for instance, liberals in terms, when they're evaluating whether something is moral, they're more concerned about justice and fairness and conservatives are more uh, concerned about something like purity or loyalty. And what people have actually found in terms of these moral foundations is it's not actually clear that political ideology leads to these different moral foundations and instead the opposite way where these moral foundations lead to political ideology over time. And I I don't know if that issue has completely been resolved, but I know there have been some different papers and and presentations going back and forth on it. So I think that's interesting. In terms of all the evidence we have about are conservatives happier than liberals, I would have to say, yes, I think they are. You know, conservatism 
is positively related to just about any way you could think about measuring uh, psychological well-being. Uh, conservatives report higher self-esteem, life satisfaction, meaning in life, which has often been the topic of my work. David Newman, who I believe is still at USC, has actually published a paper showing that conservatism is positively related to meaning in life and life satisfaction. And the link between conservatism and well-being is most central to meaning in life. So like if you control for meaning in life, it wipes out the relationship between conservatism and life satisfaction. And the idea is that like the reason why conservatives report higher happiness in general is because they perceive their lives to be more meaningful. And what I found in my work, not just for conservatism, but for a host of sort of like right wing ideological variables is uh, when we talk about meaning in life, most contemporary definitions define this sort of like global experience of one's life as meaningful as arising from three lower order facets. Uh, significance is about feeling like uh, you're special, you're important, the things you do matter to other people, the things you're sort of working on with your time are impacting society. Uh, purpose is about, you know, feeling like you have a reason to get out of bed in the morning, like your life is driven by the pursuit of valued goals. And coherence is about uh, feeling like your life, your experiences and the world around you make sense. Uh, and what we find time and time again is the reason that people on the right report higher meaning in life is because of this significance facet rather than purpose or coherence. Uh, so that the the question about are conservatives happier than liberals is primarily about conservatives feel like their lives are more significant, like their lives matter, uh, like people care about them, like the things they're doing with their time have impact. Could I uh, just like go back one step? Because there is something I, I want to add about the, the symmetry, asymmetry debate more broadly. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, to do it, I'm going to focus on the rigidity of the right hypothesis, which is arguably sort of the most influential instantiation or version of the um, asymmetries perspective. And that's the idea that, as, as, as Jake uh, told us, conservatives are more rigid, um, whether that's in terms of like their cognitive architecture or their desires for black and white kinds of situations and, and clarity and certainty or whether it's um, not being able to tolerate ambiguity in, in, in their environment. Um, whereas liberals are able to be flexible and, and uh, accommodate new perspectives and uh, it ranges kind of from bias to like the tests they give you to diagnose ADHD um, and in terms of rigidity. Um, so I have a meta-analysis uh, it's uh, just out as a preprint. What we found there, we 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 meta-analyzed the rigidity and right hypothesis. There have been these other reviews. What we found there is that when you when you look at social conservatism and economic conservatism separately, so remember, uh, you're talking to someone at the bar, and they're a social uh, conservative or economic liberal or vice versa. Um, uh, social conservatism is uh, cultural preference, like traditionalist cultural preferences and uh, things you associate with like the religious right, essentially, whereas economic conservatism is, is a free market economic policies and prioritizing like deregulation and being opposed to the welfare state and that kind of thing. Um, so when you when you pull those apart, or, or accommodate observation studies that pull them apart, what you find is that basically, social conservatism is driving all of these effects. Um, and at, this is at the correlational level. It, it wasn't it wasn't causal, so I shouldn't, I shouldn't use causal language. But basically, the correlation is just for social conservatism. Um, and that raises this question, um, what, like, what is going on there? Because a lot of the theories that we have for why conservatives are rigid draw from the shared sort of conceptual properties 
across social and economic conservatism. Um, so, you know, wanting to preserve hierarchy or keep things the same or whatever else. Um, so the effect is there for social, but our theories don't necessarily explain why that divergence is happening. I mean, they can to some extent, they, you know, there can be a different magnitude, but basically what we found is outside of the US, it was actually a negative overall point estimate for economic conservatism and rigidity. And in the US, it was, it was negligible and really only applied for dogmatism and not the other rigidity variables we looked at. I mean, I, I'd love to hear what you think about like what that means, but I, what, what, it, what, what my takeaway from it is, is that uh, we need to be more precise when we're thinking about um, and measuring politics, that mm. there is no rigidity of the right. Um, mm -hmm. It's rigidity of social conservatism. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's a really important distinction to make. So, so in thinking about this debate that I just wanted to kind of put yeah. that in, in the mix. Yeah. yeah, I've checked out that paper. I think it's interesting. I guess my initial response is, well, there's like two points I want to get at, which is like one way of a, a, new, a different way of operationalizing dogmatism. But first, I want to talk about like I find the whole concept of socially liberal, but economically conservative to be really weird. <laughs> and like, I'm not sure if it's a real thing or if it's an excuse to be conservative without seeming like an asshole. Um, I realized that like it was a term that was like popularized in politics a couple of years ago, but like social and economic conservatism, whenever you measure them are pretty, at least with the measures that we have right now are usually pretty strongly correlated with each other. Pippa Norris has done evaluations of parties all over the world and the quadrants that are by far and away the most populated are quadrants that are both socially and economically conservative or quadrants that are both socially and economically liberal. If you look at like the, the, the scatter plot, you can see a pretty clear positive correlation. And there actually are uh, to that argument, some parties that inhabit the socially liberal but economically conservative quadrant which is kind of interesting that supports that like there are some parties that like whose constellation of stances do organize around that combination but it's interesting to me especially that no one is socially conservative but economically liberal it's like almost so actually, non-existent. Yeah, I don't think I, I disagree with a lot of that in terms of like the, the data. So I know that there there is like U.S. survey census kinds of reports that show that basically as many people are misaligned as are aligned um, in terms of the social economics. So like like there's so I think the citation is Feldman 2013 here, um, but we get like socially conservative economically conservative that's like 18 socially liberal economic 18 percent of the population socially liberal economically conservative it's like 15 or 16 percent of the population um and eight percent is socially conservative economically liberal um that's one study there's other studies obviously so i'm not sure what like if you aggregated all of those what mm -hmm. it would be um but i do think this is like a not insubstantial proportion of people and and also Yes, in many samples that in the United States, at least they're they're highly correlated, mm -hmm. but that is quite contingent on the way that you're measuring these things and also mm -hmm. the samples political engagement. So people mm -hmm. who pay a lot of attention to politics um, pick up on elite cues that, hey, if mm -hmm. you're socially conservative, you should also be really capitalist and, and mm -hmm. not want regulations. Uh, yeah. Whereas people who are not politically engaged, so they kind of are a little bit more raw in terms of perhaps like what their psychological dispositions are driving them to believe, um, those people are far more likely to be misaligned. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there's a study by Ari Malka, um, a political scientist and political psychologist at Yeshiva University, who used cross-national survey data um, for social and economic conservatism and compared how strongly correlated they are. Um, mm-hmm. And his finding was that in the median or average country, they were negatively correlated. Um, mm-hmm. And that there's this massive amount of heterogeneity across across the world. So mm-hmm. um, they're highly correlated in certain subsets of the U.S. population, politically educated subsets. Um, but around the world, they're basically as close to null as you get if you average across and perhaps at, mm-hmm. like they're actually negative. So I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, we have to come from different evidence bases here. Mm-hmm. But my understanding, at least of these data, is that they're, they're pretty heterogeneous in terms of how the political spectrum is, is structured. Yeah, that seems especially strange to me, given given the the Pippinoris research I was talking yeah. about. But I guess like one the, the other thing that like, what does it even look like in the real world to be socially liberal but economically conservative? Like, for instance, you you think welfare would be a good thing, but you don't want to support financial policies that are going to fund it, or like. Do you have a sense yeah. of like what that actually looks like in the real world or, or the yeah, inverse? Sure. Of- I mean, I, th- I, I think there are people that advocate for like a global market um, with with open borders, evenly, mm-hmm. even um, and, and for just basically unfettered free market around the world, but who are also very much in support of like governmental protections that ensure equality for race and sex and and uh, gender and, and so on. Um, and so I think that's a, that's an example. Um, I also like populist movements um, are, are are socially uh, conservative, right? Cons- socially conservative, economically left. Um, at least many of them are. You know, there's there's a variability in like how you define populism, kind of shifts it. But yeah, I mean, I think I think we can observe instances of this certainly. And then that's that's before even getting into like uh, former Soviet bloc or former or presently mm-hmm. communist countries, where like yeah. what it even means to be economically left or right sort of changes yeah. um, and gets complicated. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, like in China, there was there's a a study from this year, um, or no, sorry, 2018. Um, I think it's Pan et al. Uh, that looked at the structure of political ideology in the Chinese public and found a dimension that actually there found three dimensions: one for like authoritarianism, one for nationalism. And then a third that was, on the one hand, um, uh, free market and unconventional social. Um, and on the other hand, was communist and traditionalist yeah. social. Um, and that was one coherent dimension in their analysis. So I think it, it really depends on the context. Yeah, that makes, And that's why it's important to It makes sense to me that they would depend yeah. on the conf- uh, context. The meta-analysis you described was mostly the one that you have written um, that I haven't read, but yeah. it is on my to-do list to read it, and uh, I thought it looked extremely interesting when I perused it. It's probably far too long. So, <laughs> so, yeah. uh, my question for you is about your analysis. So you mentioned that uh, only one of the two dimensions, I think it was social conservatism, is really driving this like mm-hmm. cognitive rigidity on the right hypothesis. Um, that was our interpretation. Right. At least. Is yeah. that analysis like running with? both of those scales in well first of all how correlated are those two in your study um yeah well so most people don't report that so uh we we can't uh meta analyze it mm. um that the, like the intercorrelations among among the variables you'd really need the raw data to calculate it and and, and integrate it into a meta analysis gotcha okay, okay how are they operationalized though are, are these like I mean, I know it's pretty common to just use like a single yeah. item, like where do you place yourself on social issues versus economic issues? Is, is that the yeah. thing or? It, no, it matters a lot. And so 
yeah, I mean, it, it runs the gamut in the meta-analysis. So there's um, all sorts of different measures of political ideology, some symbolic self-placement, others preferences. One thing that's really nice about it, though, is you kind of get a lay of the land of the literature. Like, um, by far the most common measure of political ideology in this literature is symbolic self-placement. Mm -hmm. um, just as by far, like, like 70, I think, percent of the samples are U.S., samples um and so i think that kind of shows the 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 limits of the generalizations we can draw about 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 political mind based on this literature right symbolic being um, like do you yeah. call yourself an economic or liberal conservative or do you call yourself a social or liberal uh person yeah right and that can yeah exactly yeah so that that's a big chunk of it and that uh, my bet is that that would matter um we didn't find moderation depending on the kind of political measure gotcha. Um, but we didn't do an interaction with social versus economic because of issues of statistical power. So it, it's quite possible that if you're looking at broadband general ideology, mm -hmm. symbolic self-placement and issues say don't don't bear on the relation with rigidity. But if you then also distinguish between social and economic and allow it to interact with the measure yeah. type, uh, then you do see an effect. That that I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. If that yeah. So I guess yeah. When I when I was you know thinking about you know how how do you be one liberal and the other conservative regardless of whether it's social economic like i was thinking about this sort of symbolic operation operationalization and that's almost always what what i've used in in my research yeah. and sort of think about um it also like sort of brings me back to you know one of one of the first things i said today was you know raising the question of whether or not we really know anything about the left if we're just operationalizing it as the opposite absence of or opposite of the right mm. um and i think you know with a lot of the issues that that you raised and a lot of the issues they brought up on wikipedia there are certainly like more nuanced ways we could get at um, you know, leftist versus rightist support for different social and economic policies than just, um, you know, asking about, um, you know, self-placement. I think, you know, some of the issues that I don't really see represented in the scales that I've seen at least would be like, and, and Manny's come up with a lot of these ideas too, like attitudes about, you know, neoliberalism and capitalism versus like other economic arrangements, mm. uh, like explicitly supporting something else or being anti-capitalist. Because I think a lot of like, totally. uh, at least in the United States, a lot of liberals are still, you know, supportive of the capitalist system. No, that's such a great point. And, and, and I think it kind of gets at the way that the left right paradigm is almost baked into how we study this, because a lot of the policy based scales are just when they're generating items, even if they're like factor analytically really sophisticated and do all the right things, when they're generating items, they're they're pulling from what's within the Overton window. So they're pulling from things that Republicans and Democrats disagree about or things that they don't talk about, like mm -hmm. like whether AI should be like used and or you know, whatever um, mm -hmm. the case may be, things that are sort of outside of our discussion. And so if you don't have items that exist outside the left-right spectrum, of course, you're only ever going to find that ideology is structured in a left-right way and then that that bears on how we study it um so yeah i totally agree with that point i mean i think mm -hmm. i think one great solution to this would be incorporating measures that are very highly multi-dimensional and allow mm -hmm. for heterogeneity in what people believe um one great example of this is uh by this uh psychologist uh saucier um who used uh the same approach they used to develop the big five mm -hmm. um where they 
took all of the trait words that are in, that are used in language and uh, wrote items based on them and factor analyzed it. So he took all the words ending in ism um, and wrote items and factor analyzed it. Uh, it's a, it's fantastic. I, I cannot praise that that approach enough. I love it. Yeah, I think this is this has been a really good discussion, and I think it's something we're gonna return to. I want to interject one detour momentarily because I want to return to the article that Jake and I uh, wrote up, and then see. Tom, you had yeah, you had absolutely. a question you had brought up, and I want to see if we can try to hash out exactly uh, where you're going with your question. So, uh, okay, fantastic. In our article, we kind of argue that for democrat, uh, sorry, for demographic reasons, political prejudice from the political right towards the left will just have worse outcomes for people from historically marginalized groups. Um, and so, basically, we've already kind of talked about this. Extremists are more likely to hate each other, but the two parties are composed of very different demographic groups. So the political right. Uh, well, I'm kind of mixing together Democrat and Republican and conservative liberal here a little bit. Uh, and so I should note that. And then I should also just I think in the U.S. that it's, yeah. it's, it's fairly straightforward okay, in the U.S. Um, yeah. And, and, and yeah. I think like uh, so people who identify as conservative, far more likely to be white, a little bit older, um, far more likely to be men, actually uh, more likely to be straight. And the other way of saying this is that the political left is a more diverse landscape of people. It is like the majority of the black people in this country, the majority of the Hispanic people, Asian people, LGBT folks, um, trans people, like any marginalized group is not always, but disproportionately um, on the political left. Um, and so if you're going to hate your ideological opponent and you're on the right, you will just hate the majority of the black people in this country, the majority of the LGBT people in this country, for example. Um, and so we kind of argue that, that therefore there are different ethical implications uh, of the two political sides. Um, and I'm uh, not, not necessarily ethical implications, but outcomes, right? They'll, they'll just be um, an increase. If, if the political right gained control of this country, there would be an increase in marginalization likely of a lot of groups of people that are on the political left. Uh, who are already historically yeah. marginalized individuals. So I'm curious if if I, I mentioned ethical implications. I'm curious, and you mentioned this also in your response, Tom. So I'm curious if you could mm -hmm. unpack, you know, what possible ethical implications might result yeah. from this, and also if those implications should sure. influence the way we do research or think about politics. Well, I'll also just say I really, I thought I really enjoyed reading that piece, and I thought it was really well executed and thoughtful. I, I mean, I found myself really agreeing with, with almost everything you wrote in that in that article. Yes, I mean, I think prima facie, it seems uh, like right wing prejudice causes more harm than left wing prejudice. And therefore, it is uh, there is like an ethical difference in terms of like how people would suffer in like a right wing versus a left wing regime in the United States. And, and as scientists, obviously, um, causing harm is not something that, that we want to do um and and so there's like an ethical consideration that comes into play what, what i was sort of driving at with that question is like what is the role of a scientist in kind of navigating um the ethical implications of of our our research especially if we're talking about like group differences um and and like what kinds of claims can we really safely make about about like whether it's prejudice or whatever else and and so i think like the safer route there is to not bet on an ethical horse, but rather to be as impartial as, as we can. But I think that is more of a moral argument than it is a scientific argument. And, and I see other perspectives for sure.
So I'm guessing, yeah, I guess I still, I feel, still feel a disconnect. Like what is the impartiality you would apply here that it might be missing? Oh, well, so like the, so the, I mean, for me, the question there is like, are they prejudiced for the same reasons? Um, and if, if they aren't, what are those reasons and why is that shaping the prejudice? Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm less curious and I, I think it's like less useful in terms of knowledge construction to delve into like who is negatively affected unless it's related to the psychological processes we're studying. Um, and I think that's where like the impartiality versus uh, being more mo motivated comes into play. Um, and that's the that's the distinction I was making. But I'm sorry if I was mis misreading. What, what well, no, I mean, I think that it is central, like that one overlaps with racism, sexism and, uh, sexism and homophobia and, and the I other doesn't is central to understanding why and how people arrive right. at these biases and um, express them. Um, okay, I think it's, and if that's the case, yeah. then it is totally justifiable to focus yeah. on Yeah, I, I think it's also just okay, I don't know. I, I don't think you meant this, but I think it's also okay for a scientist to say like racism is wrong. Uh, sure, I don't, yeah. Yeah, I don't think that's like right. necessarily, there has to be some things we can just say are wrong. Yeah, right. And there are moral norms. Um, I think that the danger is going outside of one's area of expertise. We're not moral philosophers. We're not kind of like really thinking through the ethics of what we're finding. That's often, it's an important consideration. And it, it like, especially bears on like things like AI, like we just saw like this, this PNAS paper on Twitter and things like that. People had a lot to say about ethical implications. Mm -hmm. um, and so obviously it's important and something we should be thinking about. And there's lots of historical cases um, where you're studying something with like implications for like one's physical health or well-being or like psychological malpractice where like ethics are far more important. But within social psychology, I I'm not sure that we're really gonna directly hurt people um, in the same way that those historical instances of hurt people. Um, and so because of that, I'm not sure that the ethical argument is as central or as important. I may, I may be an outlier there. I mean, I couldn't see like most people disagreeing with me on that. <laughs> well, the other thing I wanted to circle back to is like, I think like th this distinction we're, we're making is, is central to understanding maybe the limitations of the symmetry versus asymmetry debate, because, you know, there is compelling yeah. evidence of asymmetry. There is some compelling evidence of symmetry. And, and one goal we have as psychologists is to figure out how to reconcile those things under the same umbrella. But like what I think is important and, and, and particularly in, in this case of like intergroup animosity um, that one political side has towards the other, like even though they both hate each other, um, who is being hated is different and and thus the implications of that hate are wildly different. I think that's one example of like where we really need to take the like what is happening in the real world into consideration when we're trying to understand what is driving people in, in, in the context of these political yeah. attitudes and behaviors? Because like, even Especially if people- when the studies get so popularized and like- Yeah. Well, um, yeah. What, what I'm trying to say is though, like, even if there are things that are characteristic of extremity that are similar on the left and right, like what the downstream consequences of those things in the real world are wildly different. And so I would have to imagine mm -hmm. that like, how do you understand in that case what drives one person towards the left versus what drives one person yeah. to the right? Well, it seems so. For that, yes, and here this is so useful because we're kind of drilling down. I think it's almost tautological if one group is like demographically homogeneous and the other is diverse, that mm -hmm. the demographically homogeneous group, if they're prejudiced towards the other group, it is going to 
be targeting historically marginalized groups. That doesn't mean that they were drawn to that socio-demographic, political, cultural, whole like kind of cluster of things because that cluster of things is associated with prejudice. And then there's this like mutual causality where if you're on the right culturally, if you're raised in what in whatever household or or you you know you're watching Fox News in the background when you're growing up, um, then that that's causing these other perspectives and biases and and political preferences, um, and we're off to the races. So like the the question is whether it it's it's about the prejudice toward the marginalized group or whether it's just prejudice and it it is happens to be toward a marginalized group as a function mm-hmm. of who's prejudiced against you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. I want to jump in here and just add on a bit to what the two of you are saying, which is a really quite wonderful exchange that we just captured here. And I think our audience mm-hmm. will really enjoy it very much. Um, I, I just wanted to note that, Tom, this is kind of similar to what you're saying. Just because people align with one of two major political parties doesn't mean that they align under some psychological motivation, but perhaps because they view the other party as inherently distrustful or immoral. For Democratic voters, including a majority of black voters, they do not describe themselves as liberal, but prefer other labels like mm-hmm. moderate or conservative, while white Democrats are significantly more likely to call themselves liberal. And right. so this suggests that political coalitions in this case are not based on psychological traits like moral concerns or preferences for hierarchy. I would also note that with all of the groups, many that you mentioned, whether it's black Americans, Hispanic Americans, uh, Muslims, uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender Americans, um, indigenous populations, they all shifted towards Trump uh, between 2016 and 2020. And it strikes me that if the downstream consequences of the asymmetric nature, uh, Jake, is what you're describing, it doesn't seem to be something that resonates with the people in those groups. Otherwise, we'd be seeing the opposite. Now, to be fair, most of the people are aligned with the Democratic Party in those groups, but it is shifting in the other direction. And this is not a an artifact merely of this last cycle. We've been seeing this over the past decade. Uh, that's Yeah, that's so interesting. I guess I'm not familiar with those data. You're saying that people who belong to marginalized groups are more supportive of Trump? Yeah, so let, let me let me let me clarify that uh, most African-Americans support the Democratic Party over the Republican Party. But the margin by which Hillary Clinton won those voters in 2016 is larger than the Mm. margin which Joe Biden won those voters in Mm. 2020. So there's a shift happening across all those groups to the right, to the Republican Party. And by the way, it's not just in voting behavior. It's also more symbolic. We see those groups less and less likely to call themselves liberal versus moderate or independent or politically homeless. So mm-hmm. that we're, we're, we're seeing it in terms of voting, in terms of party ID, and in terms of the symbolic identification. Yeah, I mean, do you have any thoughts about that trend or? I, I think personally that the democratic brand is toxic. That's mm-hmm. what I think. And so it, it could be that there's just other stuff going on here and maybe the downstream consequences, as you're saying, are disproportionate in that same way, but people aren't necessarily picking up on it or they have other priorities and other mm-hmm. issues are also important. Uh, but I, yeah. I don't I don't have I don't think there's a grand unified theory 
of this. And I think it is quite perplexing to a lot of folks who do work in this space. Yeah, so I guess that reminds me of a, a point I wanted to bring up. Tom was talking about how, you know, like, mm. um, focusing on the, the differences in demographic heterogeneity between the groups where, you know, on the, on the right, we have the Republican Party that, you know, has pretty demographic uniformity among them. And then on the left, we have the Democratic Party that has uh, more democratic variants. In general, I think people in the conservative party or the Republican party are still more conservative. I do think one of the differences between like operationalizing in terms of categories versus a continuous measure is there's more of a so, sort of social identity process that has a role in how a person gets into one one party versus the other. But I th one, one thing I wanted to get back to though that I think is interesting is like trying to understand what's going on on the left. And right, so for instance, we have a particular theoretical model for how people become conservative. Tom talked about it a little bit. Um, there's evidence for it and against it, but it's called the theory of motivated social cognition. And it's the idea is that like uh, sensitivity to threat and uncertainty lead people to develop certain motives that are about reducing threat and uncertainty. And that predisposes them to be uh, politically conservative. Um, I think one of the things that's particularly uninsightful about that theory though, is like, what about the left? Is it just that like the absence of sensitivity to threat and uncertainty leads people to the political left? Um, or is it something else entirely, a different set of motives? And I think it's possible because um, there are so many more sort of like intersectional identity considerations to consider on the left um, that there might be more answers than one or more answers for yeah. on the right to understand why people arrive at, at, at a, a liberal orientation. Yeah. Um, you know, we like there, there might be a different reasons that like rich white men become liberals versus why, right. um, you know, a person who uh, is a, belongs to a marginalized group becomes liberal. Yeah, that's such an important point. Um, there was a paper, I think, from this year. I, shoot, I'm forgetting who the first author is. But Mark Brennan was the first author, and the second author was, was Morgan. Um, but basically, they ideographically, or they took a person-centered approach to studying political belief systems. And what they found is that there were these marked differences between how belief systems are structured uh, across people, which is more consistent with that left-right structuring, and within people, which is not consistent. So across people... Um, like attitudes about um, the allocation of like welfare funds was correlated with attitudes about like prejudice, like prejudice towards black people, for example, whereas uh, within people actually the opposite, uh, there's an opposite relation to what was found across. Um, and what that suggests is that you can't draw conclusions about um, individual causality, like why a given single person is conservative or liberal based on between person data. Um, because the, the structure of it is different. And so I think then the implication of that is that people become liberal or conservative for lots of different reasons, um, because the, the, the lower order pieces of liberalism and conservative, conservatism are different between people. Um, so they must become liberal or conservative for different reasons. And uh, that, I think that's so important and, and something that really is required to crack the code of what's going on with politics and psychology. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree with, with, with your point, Jake. And also with the left, yeah, it's it seems to be more complicated <laughs> than, than what's going on with the right, yeah. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> I wanna piggyback on that point because I, I do think that is a really interesting approach. And I wanna read that paper about like taking an individual level approach to understanding the origins of one's political beliefs as opposed to more of this like group level understanding. 
and it reminds me of something that is happening in so i study racial inequality and one of the directions that the field is starting to take more is we've always conceptualized racial inequality or sorry racism on an individual level we've looked at individual interpersonal racism and i think keith payne with his bias of crowds work and also other scholars uh trawalter i think is her name uh has kind have kind of tried to steer us in a direction of actually no systemic racism is kind of the issue and i i see uh kind of an analogy to what you're describing which is that we've kind of been studying politics systemically for a long time and you're kind of saying but an individual within that system might have a very idiosyncratic way that they stumbled into their beliefs. Mm-hmm. And one other thing I'll bring up here, too, is that we often talk about a person voting against their own interests, mm-hmm. um, which is like a common way to conceive of. Uh, well, I think a lot of like liberals will talk about conservative voters doing such a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that we've and this has come up a little bit in our conversation where like people who are not politically savvy are the ones who kind of have this disconnect between uh, social conservatism and and economic conservatism. Mm -hmm. So I want to bring these points together and kind of, I'm just like working through this right now, but it just seems like, yes, there are going to be uh, really complicated and probably really idiosyncratic and uh, just like uh, stochastic ways that people stumble into their beliefs. But there will also be these kind of regularities. And it seems like uh, Mm. on on a system level, and it seems like as political psychologists, we have to grapple with both of those levels simultaneously because ultimately politics is a team sport. Um, Politics emerges on this like larger level and that's how policy is made and that's how like politicians get votes and all of that. And so while I do think it is important to think about how like an individual might like stumble into their beliefs in very different ways, the parties and like what they do and the overall uh, political ideologies, um, that occur on a group level, I don't know. It almost seems like that's the more important uh, facet because that is what's going to generate a society yeah. worth living in or not. Yeah, and that's a great point. Um, and it, yeah, that's then like sort of a judgment about what you want to focus on and study. Yeah, I, I, it's a great point. And uh, the, the, the question too there is whether comparing... Uh, ideal like getting into ideology like should like should be in the mix like if that's the case if the argument just outlined is the case then like why even care about what the content of conservatism or liberalism is if it's just going to change um in 20 years or 30 years like you know if if they were studying the Whigs in 1860 as with political (laughs) psychologists of your um you know like if they were focusing on the content of ideology they wouldn't learn anything generalizable necessarily um, I want to see that paper uh, in psych science. <laughs> the, poli- the political psychology of the Whigs. <laughs> um, so here's the final question. It's more of like a almost a popcorn question. Uh, it's just meant to kind of get get you thinking. And, and I want to hear it's supposed to evaluate, I guess, your, your values a little bit and what and where your head is at. So I'll start with uh, Jake and then we'll, we'll uh, Tom, I'll ask you this is the same question for both of you. So imagine you're in another dimension and you're looking at a panel of dials that control human behavior or human thinking or human nature in some way. There are some dials that control small things like how diligent people are at putting the seat down after they finish using the toilet. But there are other dials that control big things like how much humans engage in something like warfare. So here's the question. Do you move a dial? And if so, which one, how much, and why? Jake, go first. 
Uh, my initial reaction is no, don't move a dial. Um, <laughs> I guess I think, I don't know, there's, there's value to nature and the natural way things are. I don't feel confident that I'm an expert on this civilization uh, and that any dial turning I might do could potentially have as much of a negative impact as what I expected to have in terms of a positive impact. So I think I just chill, leave the dials and enjoy space. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, yeah. I think time travel movies have really like uh, <laughs> portrayed the, the, the hazards of changing things. Uh, that's my first instinct too. I don't know though. I, I mean, it'd be something obviously you'd really want to think about. Um, one, I don't know if I would really stick to this but another i mean other than not doing anything another immediate reaction i have is like turning up the um entropy dial a little bit more chaos um, <laughs> not so much chaos but uh just requiring a greater degree of uh, flexibility uh mm -hmm. to uh adapt and survive and i think that could maybe help us as a species in the long run um it wouldn't be like for within our bodies so not to like shorten our lifespans because you know entropy like causes things to decay yeah. but more like outside of that if that's allowable mm -hmm. <laughs> so more flexibility so you're gonna you're gonna get rid of social conservatives if you do that perhaps <laughs> <laughs> depending on your perspective on the debate uh, just yeah. kidding, just kidding. i guess i uh, guess i could do like a small inconsequential dial then you know because that can't I'll take pineapple off pizza for good with my diet. <laughs> oh, I love pineapple on pizza. <laughs> oh, shit. Jake, you're a terrorist. Yeah, okay. uh, <laughs> that's a great question. Wow. I, I, I really like that. Cool. Cool. Jake. Um, yeah. I mean, the other thing you could do is do like Tom did. I think, I think your response, Jake, is very, uh, it's, it's wise to be like, I don't know what the butterfly effect of this will be. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to mess with it. But set that aside. <laughs> if you had the audacity to, to yeah. attempt to make a change, what would it be? And, and better than pineapple on pizza. <laughs> I mean, that, that's fine. Yeah, you can leave it. Uh, I don't know. Um, make it so there's exactly an even number of people who are night people and an even number of people who are morning people. Ooh, hell yeah. Split straight Ooh. down the even. Interesting. Yeah. Split half and half. <laughs> Kind of division of labor across the, yeah. the time points <laughs> nice thank you both for joining us yeah sure no this was a ton a ton of fun i, I really enjoyed chatting yeah yeah us too this is great thank you so much both yeah well manny I'll, i'm sure i'll see you in person soon but tom and, and yeah. Dylan, i hope i get to see you guys at the next conference we all attend thanks guys something fun yeah me too yeah. Thanks for listening. Join us next time on A Bit More Complicated. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to our podcast, leave a friendly rating, and share with a friend. If you have a reaction you'd like to share with us, please find us on Twitter, at A Bit More Pod, or send an email to morecomplicatedpod at gmail.com.